Dalo Falava, warm Pacific greetings, and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. My name is Eliora Malifa. On this episode, we're talking about food security and the growing concerns in the Pacific about food accessibility. We're at a time when many people have been in lockdown, many have lost their jobs and may feel insecure, borders are closed and supply chains are disrupted. People are worried, but people are also taking responsibility by starting new gardens at home and expanding community ones. This is a timely discussion, given that in late September, the United Nations hosted its Food Systems Summit to confront the issues and strategize. It's not just the Pacific that's concerned about food security, but the whole world. So today, I'm joined by two experts in the field of food systems in the Pacific, Ms. Karen Mapusua and Dr. William Yese. Karen is Director of the Land Resources Division at the Pacific Community in Suva, and Viliamo is a Senior Lecturer in Disaster Risk Management at the Pacific Centre for Environmental and Sustainable Development at the University of the South Pacific. Welcome to both of you. Talofa, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I am doing uh, okay. Can't complain. It's really great to have you both here. Um, I want to go straight into the UN Food Systems Summit, which I mentioned in the introduction. What were some of the key things that you both took away from the summit? Um, I think if I just talk about some of the things that came out of the process in the summit, I think that's that's okay. useful because that's going to help us map the way forward. One of the key things that came out of the regional dialogue and um, flowed through really strongly from the priorities that we had in the region was a really strong focus on blue or aquatic foods. Obviously, really important for us in the region. One, economically really important, um, but also just for basic food security. You know, a huge proportion of our population depend on coastal fisheries for protein. Uh, so that focus, I think, is quite new in the discussion. So that's going to be really valuable for us going forward. I think some of the other really important things that came out of the region are that, you know, that growing interest in Indigenous food systems. I think that's really valuable. And also the focus, um, the continued focus on systems approaches. So well, the discussions around agroecological approaches, for example, regenerative systems. Uh, so going beyond just the discussion of agriculture that is climate smart or uh, agriculture that is sustainable, but really looking at how agricultural production systems contribute um, both negatively and potentially positively into those other environmental questions as well. Um, I think just two quick ones. Um, I think the first one is that the food system, like food security, is not easy. It's a very complex system. Um, and it's a system sometimes we cannot generalize because uh, it can go down to a very specific as a food system of a household. Um, sometimes if we work at a national level, we assume a lot that the national food system looks like this. But the, the, the household level also has a different food system of what they eat depending on their own decision context on what they, they could access on. And, and that is very valuable to, to understand. At the moment, we don't really understand that fully in the Pacific Island countries. We always say our food systems are these production, da, 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 like that. 
But I think we we need to understand the specifics of the food system at different locations um, and um, and how much reliance on different or variations of the components of the system at different locations. And that understanding is important to inform uh, policy. So data is, is crucial. Information is important. And the research uh, needs to, to come out um, strongly in order to support this. Um, if we really valuing the food system approach, which I believe it's something that we should, we should value. Uh, the second, uh, the second part of it is, um, is that we have a, we always quote um, Aristotle in one of our research projects, um, and then we look at it and we say like. Um, uh, the whole is better than the sum of its parts. Um, and and if we're thinking of systemic approaches or a systemic approach, it's always bringing the components together and work in order to produce a much better outcome. And we are communal societies. We are systemic societies. It's always like the benefit of the household, benefit of the community, more than the individual, individualistic approach. So in our DNA, in our traditional systems, systemic approach and food system existing there. So I think we need to, to relook at that and then how to bring this traditional way of doing things different stakeholders in the village, different households, but they all work together for the benefits of the whole of the whole community. Thank you both for going into that. Um, I think food systems are an interesting area of work and research because um, maybe especially for a person such as myself, food can often be something that we take for granted. Um, with that in mind, can you both please give our listeners a brief background on yourselves and how you came to work in this space? Sure. Uh, well, I actually started to work in the agriculture and food security space in Samoa. I was working with a small NGO called Women in Business Development, who had a program in organic agriculture. Um, prior to that, I, you know, I was a history teacher and worked in NGO management and all sorts of things. So it hasn't exactly been a straight path to, to agriculture, but that really got me intrigued and the links between what we grow on the ground, uh, the impact we have on the environment, and of course, human health just became you know, the obvious place where I wanted to be able to work and explore and, and see what I could contribute. So yeah, it rolled from there and I uh, moved to the Pacific community in 2012 and have various roles there. Uh, and I'm currently the director of the Land Resources Division, which does the full gamut of agriculture and forestry support to the members of the region. Um, yeah, so how I got into this field, uh, uh, it's a very exciting um, journey because uh, it's, it's all about growing up in in Samoa and uh, I grew up in uh, our village of uh, like Lotofanga, uh, Safata um, and then um, raised by my grandparents so 
farming and fishing was almost uh, everyday life. Uh, they, um, spending a lot of time with my um, grandfather um, in the taro farm, um, the mountains, and throughout all of these um, experiences, uh, as a child, uh, I have observed that food is is more than what you just put in your mouth, and then you grow inside you, and then you grow, you become a person. Uh, food is is uh, an identity. Uh, food is culture. Food is status. Uh, food is is income. It's also a currency. Um, it's also a way to solve all the issues or the problems. Um, and um, and I value what food um, 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 could do uh, within um, the household and also at the, at the community. And I continued on. So I did um, a PhD here as well at uh, the University of South Pacific uh, and focusing more on um transformational adaptation. So this is more of uh, surviving the challenge of, of climate change um, and how could uh, we uh, transform and build resilience in our aquaculture system. So, yeah, so I'm, um, I joined the, the Pacific Center for Environment Sustainable Development in 2010. Um, I have been a research fellow here for about um, 11 years focusing on food security, um, disaster risk management, uh, and climate change. Um, and I just um, yeah, um, promoted to, to senior lecturer, uh, senior lecturer for disaster risk management uh, just uh, recently. So it has been an exciting uh, journey, but it's something that we're really, really passionate about. Awesome. So now that we have that context and the context of the UN Food Systems Summit, I wanted to ask you both, what do you think are the unique challenges that the Pacific faces when navigating the global food systems? Um, Karen, we might start with you. We're in an interesting place in the Pacific as far as the global food system goes. Uh, you know, we're, we're a third of the planet. We make a huge contribution to the global food system through our fisheries to start off with. We've also made other contributions over the years of, you know, phosphate from some of our islands, which of course has had a very negative impact environmentally. We contribute now through the seasonal workers schemes of, you know, labor going to Australia and New Zealand um, to support food production and harvesting there. So, so we're really engaged globally. And we often hear about the, you know, the distance and the isolation, and they're all very real factors. But, but we still engage very strongly from that contrib you know, contribution side. On the receiving side, um, that's where we, you know, that's where we have some challenges. Uh, we've, our diet has shifted dramatically. Some, some of the countries in the region import up to 80% of their food, which makes us very vulnerable to, to changes in the market, food availability, the costs and shocks that happen in other parts of the world as COVID has demonstrated disruptions to shipping and transport all put us in a really vulnerable position. Uh, the fact that we've become so dependent on external supplies of food. A knock on from that, I guess, is often that food is much cheaper than locally produced food. And, you know, we're not uh, communities that have a huge amount of cash in our pockets. 
So often families are making choices for the cheaper food rather than the healthier local food. And, and over time, our production has started to drop of local foods. Uh, as I said, they're often more expensive than an imported product. So it's really impacted on, on livelihoods around food and agriculture as well. Just the fact that it's difficult for us to compete on price as the most basic thing with those imported foods. And of course, going on from there, we have our NCD crisis. When we've moved away from the, the food groups that were our staples and were healthy and balanced and provided the nutrients we need to what is increasingly really calorie dense food, but of much lower quality. I think that the global food system has been very unsustainable for many years. Uh, the way that food have been produced in a monocropping way, they cleared out the forest, polluted the rivers, and all of this um, polluting our ocean, over-harvesting uh, everything in order to, to produce it because it's, it's to get uh, an income and for these large uh, businesses to to sustain their own markets and business model. And consequently, um, we have planetary health issues that we are suffering because of that. So... We're all part of the of the system. Uh, we are contributing to it indirectly, uh, especially purchasing all of these uh, foods that are coming uh, to us. And because of that low quality, um, ultra-processed imports, we have very high rates of non-communicable diseases or food-related type of, uh, of diseases. And that put a lot of burdens on our own people. Um, as we know that there is very high reliance on imported foods in the Pacific. And the funny thing about it is that if you look at food imports data, um, the rate of increase, like it started right after independence. Uh, so I always laugh at it, but it's, it's one of those moments that it's funny, but it hurts. Um, that the moment we, our countries, want to become independent from um, colonial powers was the beginning of our dependency, heavy dependency on a global food system. So um, there is an imbalance of, uh, of these things. And then another important thing about it is that the Pacific Islands are feeding a lot of people in the world. Um, because we we are exporting a lot um, of our foods that we produce. The containers of taro coming to Australia and going to Australia and New Zealand and the US and a lot of vegetables, uh, a lot of fruits, and also a lot and lots of fish from our ocean going to the to the markets outside. So Pacific Islands is is also feeding the world. Okay, thank you both. And speaking of this imported food, following on from that last question, how have COVID lockdowns impacted food security, especially in urban areas? Yeah, really good question. And that has varied a lot across the region. 
obviously the countries that are more dependent on imports, so there's been um, a bigger challenge because you know you see the, the pictures of the shelves being empty in supermarkets, those sort of things. Um, in areas, in countries where there is quite a lot of local production, the challenge has been often getting that fresh food across whatever barrier or containment zone or lockdown the country is facing into the urban dwellers who don't have their own gardens. So that has been a challenge. Uh, it's been a challenge both for the people looking for that food and it's no longer so easily accessible in the municipal market. Also a challenge for growers who then don't have a market, so are losing crops. Um, you know, I think many of the countries have really tried valiantly to find ways around it. In Fiji, there, the government was supporting the buying of produce and bringing it into town, into Suva, so that people could still access it. But it has had an impact across the board for sure. And I think, uh, I don't have the figures, but there is sort of the, the evidence that food prices have increased considerably throughout the pandemic. And that's, you know, on the back of, of all of those issues. Um, COVID-19 also showed that um, when the international um, movements or trades uh, systems got uh, disrupted, um, it also affected uh, the islands were still affecting us um, in some of the, the costs of some of uh, the food items are going up uh, during um, during COVID-19. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's well connected, uh, the global food system to the Pacific and the Pacific to the global system. The important thing about it, I think uh, positively that came, uh, what came out of this food system dialogue is that it gives us an opportunity, not just globally, but also countries, um, national level, to come together and say, let's have a Talanoa on this thing. Um, let's have a dialogue on this, because we have known all along about all this, but we did not have that kind of system or um, a platform that forces the countries to come and say, let's have a talk about this. Thanks, Billy. You bring up an important point about the Food Summit and the regional dialogues. I want to ask you, Karen, how important are traditional food systems in the grand scheme of things in the Pacific? And how is traditional food systems or the discussion about it being incorporated into these regional dialogues and these summits? I think what we saw in the region, if I use Fiji as an example, because the impact of, you know, tourism dropping out during COVID was, was massive. It just put so many people into, into unemployment. And many went back to the farm, back to the village and started growing again. So I think the, you know, the, the lesson there is it, it provides a backstop for us, our traditional, the fact that we have access to land through traditional land tenure systems is really important. Um, for providing that safety net, I guess. And I think across the region, you know, traditionally, obviously, like everywhere in the world, we, we grew for ourselves. We grew to feed our families. And we knew that cyclones were going to come occasionally. So there were um, techniques and practices for conserving food. Often, you, often they were fermenting different of our staples like breadfruit, 
that would then last you through that season. Uh, there were ways that we managed trees and crops and in preparation for those sort of disasters so that they didn't get as much damage as they would without any of that you know, pruning or preparation that might go on. So all of those practices, I think, um, are really important in shoring up food security and things that we need to, to keep going and learn how to scale into what we now have on commercial plantations, which are you know, much, much more vulnerable to disasters and shocks of all sorts than are the traditional mixed cropping systems but we need both they're both an important part of the food system so we need to be able to you know support both of those when it comes to um you know international discussions and negotiations and the big picture around uh food systems and food security and building resilience to shocks i'm not convinced that this is a strong enough part of the discussion in our regional dialogues uh, for leading up to the um, Global Food Summit, the importance of traditional practice, traditional science, indigenous knowledge, that was seen as needing to be absolutely equal and complementary with, with newer techniques and with science. So, and that's you know, very, very strongly felt in the region. Through the international process of the Global Summit, it appeared in in spots. Some people really recognise that that was something that we need to utilise and address and build on. Uh, but largely, I would have hoped that it would take a stronger, you know, a stronger piece of that picture. Um, there were some positive things like there is a, a coalition forming around uh, Indigenous food systems, which will be really valuable, I think, for furthering that discussion. And it's just something that I think in the Pacific and definitely in, in SPC, in the Pacific community, we're now really looking at how we can continue to, to bring the traditional science and practices alongside the, the newer science and technology that we offer. And I think about it like the, if we're weaving the Pacific food basket, you've got one set of strands, which are the tradition and the sci that traditional science, even more so than just knowledge, practices, community structures, land tenure, and then through that, just to help strengthen it in these changing times, that's where we weave the new technology and different agricultural approaches and breeding and all of those sort of things. Thank you, Karen. Now to you, Billy, I ask, what are some of the technological innovations you think will progress the discussion around food security and resilience in the region? Mm, well, the role of technology is very crucial in achieving um, sustainability or resilience of our uh, of our food system. And um, yeah, there, there are different um, uh, technologies and pathways that um, look at the development of uh, of resilient crops. And I think the, the Pacific community um, has done um, a really good job on that um, in working with the, the partners, but these are all the systems that have happened before uh, COVID-19. And some of these systems work on really good partnership. I think in the beginning, it was a very good partnership between the Pacific community and the University of South Pacific. In some of the partnership, uh, because it was research-based development in some of the projects in the 90s, I think, um, where they did a lot of this breeding um, in order to get um, 
um, paras or fungus, uh, best, uh, like tolerant type of varieties, high yield type of varieties, um, early matured type of varieties. So I think there have been very strong mechanisms um, facilitated by the Pacific community um, in order to, to do that because sometimes we don't have sufficient resources to do the breeding programs ourselves. So we rely on the breeding programs that are existing in in other parts of the world um, for, for different crops. So there is also a very fast evolving um, breeding systems in order to produce crops that are climate resilient. So like salt tolerant crops, drought tolerant crops, um, water locking uh, tolerant crops. And I think they, they are all very important and they could play a important role in the, in the food system. Billy, thank you for bringing up the subject of climate resilient crops. Um, I'm going to pivot to you, Karen, and ask what are the specific impacts that climate change has had on Pacific Island food security? There's numerous various scenarios for what climate change will bring, but in different parts of the region, it will mean uh, likelihood of longer, more severe droughts, for example. Uh, in others, it means less frequent but more intense cyclones. So we need to be building systems that can help us get through those, um, you know, to the degree that is possible. So, and you know, we all know that a category five cyclone, there's not so much that you can do, there will be damage, but what can we do to mitigate that? What can we do to protect the soil from those really torrential rains so they don't all get washed away? So I think that's one of the first really obvious pieces. The other piece that I think is becoming more part of the conversation is the potential for, for the changes in weather patterns to trigger other changes, for example, new pests and diseases or different loads of pests and diseases on um, crops, just depending on, you know, how that weather fluctuates. And that's something we really need to be keeping a very close eye on and again, getting ready to, to mitigate. Mm -hmm. Coastal areas, obviously, sea level rise and um, inundation and sort of the soils close to the sea becoming more saline because of that. So we really need to be looking at what crops do well um, in those environments and developing breeding programs that um, help the crops we have survive better in a, in a more saline environment or survive better through drought. So there's a whole lot of, you know, that sort of crop specific work that we need to do as well in the climate change space. We also need to think that there'll be different flowering seasons for things. Some crops will stop growing well in another area, but start you know, doing really, really well somewhere else where they didn't grow before. So we need to start tracking where these potential changes are. And you, you, know, you talk to farmers and there's anecdotal reports of that happening um, now. So we really need to be tapping into that knowledge base of the farmers and capturing as much of it and starting to see if we can, can map it and run scenarios of how that might pan out in the next, you know, 20, 30 years to help people plan. Thanks, Karen. 
Um, this question is for the both of you. How can international aid agencies restructure their response to disaster or natural disaster in the Pacific to help build ongoing resilience locally? Yeah, great question. Uh, and you know, we see we see the same thing with every natural disaster. There's a very immediate response from all our development partners, which is fantastic. But you know, thinking about how we can do that better so that it is building into stronger resilience going forward. And I think we've had a, you know, a couple of good experiences. When um, Vanuatu was hit by the cyclone right at the start of all the COVID lockdowns and, um, you know, transport dropping out and all of those sort of things. And they made a choice of rather than allowing planes to land with food aid because they didn't want people bringing COVID into the country, they purchased food from the islands that were not affected by the cyclone and brought it to the affected islands, which also meant they could bring the planting materials. So, you know, support to that sort of homegrown initiative, you know, which is more complex than flying in, a, you know, a plane of canned goods. Um, but I think that is a, you know, a really productive way to start looking at those things. I think we also, Big Creative Development Partners could also just look at um, how we plan for some of those things. And I'm thinking really broadly about disasters now, and I think about um, pest and disease incursions. Now at the moment, because you know, development funding is projectized. So you, you receive funding to deliver a project for a particular outcome. But if you have an emergency outbreak of something, um, and maybe we'll use coconut rhinoceros beetle or African swine fever. You know, we don't have project money ready to go and provide the intervention we need to do immediately. And no matter how hard you try, it takes time to then develop a project or find little bits of money to be able to provide that intervention. And those things are really time sensitive. So for partners to invest in an emergency fund, for example, that you know, can, can sit somewhere in the, in the region, in the Pacific community, for example, if we're talking pests and diseases, that is um, maybe like a trust fund, something along those lines, or you know, just something that we can say, okay, we've got this issue, these are our first three things we need to do as an emergency response dip into that money, deal with it, then make the plan for, for going forward. And it's, you know, just that money for emergency response. So we really can do the assessment, work out what we want, what we need to do, and then talk to partners about longer term support for, you know, for addressing that issue. But that ability to respond instantly on a need around a crisis is something that, that we really don't don't have within the region yet. So always trying to find the bits of money from different places in order to do that. Yeah, I think that is, um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> it's not just for the, um, for the um, um, disaster risk, uh, building the resilience of the Pacific. Um, in this sectoral approach of the government, like the one I was talking about, I think it's all aligned all the way to the sectoral way aid agencies or the UN system is working on. So the whole framework of this United Nations 
system that is there are sectors uh, very strongly sectoral like pillars or, or silos um, and then all the financial mechanisms all you know the type of donor that will look after the health you know the type of donor that will fund uh, crops you know the type of donor that will look at all these uh, certain things so it's that sectoral approach and I think uh, aid agencies have contributed to uh, to that uh, as well. So that's why I say like the whole machinery of the sectoral machinery is operating based on the components rather than the system. And that's my hope is that the machinery will work and then review all the systems um, in order to fit within, we'll review the components and realign the components to fit within the system or operations within the system. In in terms of aid uh, um, agencies and how they um, they operate, um, I, I I strongly think in um, uh, in the approach of us um, strongly believe in the approach of uh, of localization, um, and this is the localization of um, the interest, the need. Um, and localization of capacity to deliver. Um, and I think the aid agencies um, first should listen to the priorities from, from the countries, uh, listen to the, um, the real uh, needs of the people, because sometimes the aid agencies have their own priorities, especially during disaster risk management um, and disaster response. Um, and the aid agencies have a habit. Sometimes they say, uh, we know the priorities, what the priorities are. But I think um, they should listen a little bit more and work more, not just to the national level, but also the subnational level, uh, to the NGOs who are working with the communities um, and also at the national department level who are operating at the national level. So. Um, to provide some form of guidance, um, not just at the end of the implementation when they say like, okay, let's go do this, but in the whole planning, in the planning process. Okay. On that note, I want to thank both my guests, Ms. Karen Mapusua, Director of the Land Resources Division at the Pacific Community, and Dr. William Muyese, Senior Lecturer in Disaster Risk Management at the Pacific Centre for Environmental Studies at USP. Thank you both for joining me on this episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. Thank you for sharing your knowledge of Zaitse That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find a link to this episode on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can also find us on Facebook at Australia Pacific Security College or on Twitter at PSC underscore ANU. And you can listen to the Pacific Wayfinder on Google, Apple and Spotify podcasts. The music on the theme song that you are listening to is Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. Please tune in next time for more discussions on the Pacific Wayfinder.